special on a lot of levels um, because of my connection with Weston and and the Wax family and seeing you all when you were just beginning here in Blackman and now seeing how the Lord has grown you and blessed you and knitted you together. I I love that you guys have a house and when we were in Sunday school I felt like I was just sitting in the living room of my family. so that's a really good move. Good job on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I was blessed by that discussion. And being here, I, I'm not a great preacher. So that's my disclaimer as we get going here. So. And, and sometimes hearing, I can just, I can just say it's all grace. Right. I look at times that the Lord has used me to, to hear the great gifts that Weston was talking about earlier. Just, it's not because I'm overly adequate as a teacher or as a nice guy, as a minister of any sort. Jesus is more than adequate. Jesus is all that we need. And that's what I find myself running into all the time when, I, when I'm trying to go and do things in my own strength and I'm, when I'm trying to be helpful to other people in my own strength and say, I've got something to offer you. I always find myself at the end of it very broken, very lonely, and very needy. And Jesus is always there for me. So today, as we get into Luke 19, like I said, I wasn't invited here because I'm a great preacher. <laughs> I was invited here because Jesus is more than adequate to teach you something today from his word. Amen. So do this one. This is, this is my big ask of the day. Let down your guard. Take, take down barriers that you're placing over your heart today. Be yourself. When you hear this word, Hear God speaking to you. You didn't come here for me. You came here to have an encounter with God. So today, as we read this word, as you hear it preached, let down that guard. I'm going to warn you, for some of you, it is going to be a balm of comfort. It is going to feel so good to let down your guard and have the word come at you and to hear about the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And you're going to say, amen, this is exactly what I needed to hear today. Some of you, though, it is going to hit you like a Mack truck, and it is going to be devastating. It's even going to hurt a little bit. There might be things that Jesus is going to say to you today that you're going to say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to live in light of that. I just don't want that. It doesn't fit me. Let it fit you. Let it change you. Luke 19. We're going to start in verse 28. I don't know how you guys usually do things, but if you're willing and able, let's stand and read this word together. This is God speaking to us. 
chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called all of that, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, Yes, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawn near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known in this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Fathers, as we want today, please speak to us. Nourish us, encourage us, rebuke us if need be, but speak to us and change us by the power of your spirit and your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to tell you three stories from the Bible that I think if you, if you get in your head and you can see how they connect, then this story in the Bible about Jesus will make a lot more sense to you. So the first story, don't turn there. I just want you to listen to that. If you want to write down the reference, that's fine. But just listen today. John chapter 6. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. This is a tremendous miracle. Just a few loaves, a few fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. And they have baskets left over. And the people are so impressed by this that they want to take Jesus by force and make him king. They're thinking, this guy can feed us. He can supply an army. Let's make this guy king. So they want to do this. Jesus leaves because he sees that this is what they want to do. And he's not ready for that. They go on the other side of the lake to find him, asking, how did you even get here? Where did you come? And he says, you're only after me. This is a great greeting to them, right? You're only after me because I fed you. You just want food. You saw the signs, that's why you're after me. You don't really want true bread. And he goes on in John chapter 6 to say that while God fed Israel once with manna from heaven, he's the true manna from heaven. He's the true bread of life. He's the true one that's going to satisfy. He's the bread. He's the life. 
If they have him, then they will never, ever need anything ever again. Way over their head. They don't get it. And so Jesus continues to press this point home, being, using language that if you read John chapter 6, might unsettle you a little bit, saying, you've got to eat me. You've got to drink my blood. Still way over their head. Not getting that. He's not being literal here, right? Thank goodness. And they say to him, this is a hard say. Who can follow it? And several of his disciples, maybe the majority of his disciples, people that have been following him, people who previously wanted to make him king, they leave. What Jesus was teaching them did not fit their concept of what a king was. So they left. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you're following the history of Israel up to this point, God has delivered them out of Egypt by, the hand, by his mighty hand, having Moses lead them out. They go through the wilderness. Moses is able to take them up to the edge of the land. He can't enter himself, but Joshua, the conquering hero, takes the people in. He's courageous. They conquer the land. They have the land. Now they're there. They're established in it. Joshua dies. People rebel. God raises up a judge, saves them. That judge dies. The people rebel. He raises up a judge. He saves them. On and on and on until you get to Samuel. And Samuel appoints his two sons to be judges over the people in Samuel chapter 8. But there's one problem. They're terrible at this. They're corrupt. They're not good people. And, and Israel decides. They have the solution to this. They go to Samuel and they say, give us a king like the kings of the other nations. And Samuel doesn't like this. He goes to the Lord and the Lord says, do that for them. You give them this king. Because they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me as king. Because in asking for a king, like those of the other nations, if you're not familiar with ancient Near Eastern culture, they're asking for one who's eventually, if not immediately, going to be claiming some kind of divine status. So they're asking for a king that is going to be opposed to what makes Israel distinct in all the world, that they have the one true God as their king. So they're looking at their situation. We got a couple bad judges. They think this doesn't fit for us. We want a king that makes us fit in with the rest of the nations, who can give us what we want. And God tells Samuel to give him a warning, to let him know. He says, "Go ahead and do this thing, but I want you to tell them what they're really going to get." I'm going to read that for you. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain in your vineyards and give it to his male servants and his female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. He will take Take, take. 
Last story. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Probably pretty familiar with it because you guys did the gospel project. Good for you, by the way. Keep going. Genesis chapter 1, we see that God is not only the king of Israel. God, as the creator of all things, is the rightful king of all creation. It's his. It's God's universe. We just happen to live in it. All creation is his. That means you. That means me. And Adam and Eve lead us in doing what we do all the time. They question God and they reject him as their king. Led by the lies of the serpent, they start to wonder, yeah, is God actually telling us the way that we should go? Is he, is he giving us the truth? Because the, the serpent's making it sound like we're not in a good situation, that we're not on a good trajectory. So what do they do? They decide that they can make a fit for themselves that's better. They would be a better king. They would be better rulers than God would be. As somebody mentioned in Sunday school, right? This is what Adam and Eve decided to do. They could decide what was right. They could decide what was wrong. They didn't need to listen to God. In all of these stories, you see this common theme, don't you? Where people are deciding that they can find a fit better for them when it comes to a ruler. When it comes to a king, we can fashion something for ourselves that's going to meet my needs better. And if I can't, well, then I'll just reject this one and I'll go and do it again. I mean, don't you see that going on in your life? And don't you see it going on in the lives of other people around you? That they, they, they grab onto something that they think, this is going to, this is going to solve all my problems. This is going to make things right. This is going to change the trajectory that I'm on. People come up, this is going to be my new diet. It's going to change me. I'm going to be great after I do this diet. They come up with a new workout plan. This is going to make me look good. And once I look good, life will be good. They come up with a new budget and financial plan. Well, once we get this all sorted out, everything will work again. Or they think, if I can just get in this relationship, or if I can end this relationship, or change this relationship... We're looking for salvation in all these things. And whatever promises it to us, whatever says, I can be a king that gets that for you, we're ready to say, I will be your slave. Just tell me what to do. I will do it. And when it doesn't work anymore, we toss that off and say, where's a new king for me? Luke 19 smashes into us with this reality that there really is only one king. There's one choice. Everybody else, everything else is simply a pretender to the crown. It's a pretender to ultimate authority because they don't have it. They can't offer those things to us. And so we have to stop looking for something that will fit us and say, how do I fit onto this? So today as we look at Luke 19, let's ask ourselves these two questions. I only have two points, so don't worry. If you think that introduction is really long, I only have two points. Here are two questions I want you to be thinking about as we go through this text. One, who is your king? Easy answer is Jesus, right? But I want you to think, where am I looking for solutions to my problems? Where am I looking for comfort? 
What am I trusting in? Am I saying, this is going to make it all better? This new plan, this new strategy, or this other human being? Or am I looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus is the only one who is going to make all things right. And I need to cling to him no matter what trouble comes with it. So that's question one. Who is my king? Who is your king? And the second, if that king isn't Jesus, if that thing isn't Jesus, why do you want it? Why do you insist on clinging on to something that will never satisfy and never give you what you truly need, which is peace with God? So those are the two questions. Just keep those in your mind. Write them down on your paper as we go through the rest of Luke. Let's begin. <clears throat> I ask those questions because my two points to this, I think, will we'll kind of feed into it. Because we see, we see, as I said, that Jesus is the only true king. And that he alone can give you all that you need. Let's see how Luke tells us that in Luke 19. First, the Bible tells us here that Jesus is the long-awaited king that gives to his people. Jesus is the long-awaited king that gives to his people. So if you read the Old Testament, you're going to find over and over again a promise that God is going to give us a king. And this promise comes in seed form, even in Genesis 3. We're told that this king is going to come through Eve, and then the promise is narrowed down. We see that this king is going to come from Abraham and Sarah, then Isaac, then Jacob, and on and on to David. And we're given promises like this even in Isaiah chapter 9, speaking of this king that will be born. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's a big promise, right? This is a kingdom that's not going to end. It's going to be just. It's, it's going to be wonderful. This is what Israel is looking for. God has made a promise for a king, and they have got their eyes peeled. They want this king. They're in a situation where they're in political frustration. Maybe that's the right word to say. I don't know. But Rome is over them. They don't have what they want. They don't have their own rule. They don't have their own authority. And they want God to vindicate himself. They want God to vindicate them by sending this king. So they've got their eyes peeled. They're looking for this king that God has promised. And here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. And if we don't know the biblical and ancient background around a donkey, that sounds pretty ridiculous, right? We think about donkeys, and well, they don't have a very nice connotation today. Uh, you don't want to be called a donkey. And so when you see Jesus riding down on a donkey, 
it could seem silly, but by the middle of the third century BC, we're already seeing that donkeys are connected with royalty over and over and over again. You can find ancient inscriptions where the chariots of kings are being pulled by donkeys. And if you're wondering why is that, well, the working theory right now among archaeologists is that donkeys were just domesticated first before horses. And so you're going to get something to pull your chariot. It's going to be a donkey. This can't be associated with royalty. So there you go. Simple enough answer, right? Donkeys are royal. And you see this happening not just in the ancient Near Eastern world, but you see it going on in the Bible too. In Judges 12, we have, we have 30 sons of a judge who each rule a city, and it says they all ride a donkey, which doesn't sound very impressive yet again until you realize, oh, that means they're a big deal. They ride a donkey. Or you see that Solomon, when he was taken to be anointed as king, what did he ride? He rode another beast of burden, David's beast of burden, which was David's seal of approval on his son, saying, this is the one I'm choosing to be king. He gets to ride my mule. Mighty, mighty. Jesus knows this. Israel knows this. And so when we see in Luke 19, Jesus' effort here, this, this very direct movement to set up this encounter as he comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey, a colt, which is just a donkey that's never been ridden before. This is very purposeful on his part. Turn with me. No, don't turn. I'll just read it to you. I'll just read it to you. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the father of a donkey. Jesus knows these words. All of Israel knows these words. This was God's promise. Your king is going to come to you in this way. That's Zechariah 9 9. In Zechariah 14, we're also told, Zechariah 14, verses 4 and 5, that the Messiah is going to make himself known to Israel on the Mount of Olives. Wow. Let's look again here. What is Jesus doing? Verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has yet sat. This is not coincidence. Jesus is declaring loud and clear, that king you're waiting for, I am that king. Jesus is very careful to direct all the proceedings of his entrance into Jerusalem. He sends the two disciples to find this cult. Whether, whether he worked out these arrangements beforehand or whether this is some sort of supernatural knowledge that he has as the Son of God, I don't think it really matters. What matters here is that he is directing his entrance into Jerusalem very carefully because he wants to make a point to them and he wants to make, he wants to make the same point to us I am your king. So he goes. And this reality, if we're doubting it, what he's saying is not lost on the disciples. Look what they do, right? Verse 
35. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They got the message. They see what's going on. So Jesus is making a huge act of authority. He is making an unmistakable claim to being the promised king that is coming. It was with divine and kingly authority that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. There's something else in Zechariah 9.9 that I think is very interesting. Because it says of the Messiah there, that, the righteous, that he is righteous, having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Riding on a donkey is not silly, as we might perceive today, but a really intense statement of his authority and power. Why is it that the author here would say, the prophecy would say, that this was a humble act. What is humble about coming in to your kingdom saying, I am the king, you should bow down to me. I am the king, you should praise me. Here's what's humble about it. Jesus defied every expectation of what a king was going to look like. Jesus defined the power politics and the power kingdom of his day. He's not coming in saying, everybody has to bow down and I'm going to enact violence on all those around me. Everybody has to bow down and I'm going to come in here and I'm going to lay down the law. Rome, your days are done. You're going to be through. Jesus did not gain reign through acts of violence on others. Jesus came and gained God's approval and was appointed as king of the universe by coming in and letting violence be acted out upon him. He didn't come to crush, he came to be crushed. And this is astounding. Think of Rome at the time where the conquering hero would come in, it would be a triumph, and he would bring prisoners behind him saying, these are the people that I have conquered. I have destroyed cities. I have destroyed people. I'm bringing in all their riches, and it's mine now. Bow down to me. And here he comes saying, I am the king, and I'm coming to die for you. I'm coming to give up it all for you. At Philippians chapter 2, this is exactly what Paul is hitting on. Though in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but taking the form of a servant. A servant? What? He laid down his life. It wasn't just any ordinary death that he died, even death on the cross, the shameful death of a criminal. He took that on. And so, and so, this is incredible. Therefore, God, therefore, because of this death, right? This is, this is what Paul is getting. 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Great Commission, when Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, how did he get all that authority? Because he was obedient unto death. This is probably the most bizarre ceremony that we see somebody being crowned with authority ever. Because we don't recognize it. We look to kings of the nations to say, this is what a king should look like. A king is one who people come and serve. Your power and your greatness, it's measured by what people do for you. And Jesus is saying, no, power and greatness, it's measured by what you do for others. That's real power. That's real greatness. We don't have a category for that. We're not, we're not looking for a king like that because we don't recognize that that's a king because they're all pretenders. They're all phones. This is the true, long-awaited, and promised king. Do you see him? Do you see him? Number two. It's important to ask if you see him. Because Jesus is the unrecognized king. He's the unrecognized king. Yet, he longs to give mercy. So, can you imagine this scene? Jesus coming down from the Mount of Olives. This kingly statement, this kingly imagery going on, and the people are crying out, Yes! Look at all the great works he has done. The blind see, the lame walk. God is doing mighty miracles through Jesus. They're crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the Pharisees walk up and they say, Jesus, you need to stop this. They know what's going on. The disciples don't know more of the Bible than the Pharisees do. They see all this imagery. They're not mistaken about it. But they look at Jesus and say, that's not a king. They're offended by Jesus making the statement that he's a king. They see Jesus and say, he's just a rabbi. Rabbi, make your disciples stop. This is inappropriate behavior. How could you? Unless we think, I don't, I don't even want to give them too much credit here, right? Unless we think that they're, they're just worried that they're going to make Rome upset by this statement here. That's not what's going on. This guy is riding down a hill on a donkey. The Romans are looking at this and they're saying, whatever, this is not a big deal. They're not worried about Rome here. They are offended by the person of Jesus. They're looking at him and we're saying, that kind of king doesn't fit with us because he's not going to give me what I want. Isn't it incredible that in a few days, in a week's time, they're going to be crying out to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. They're going to be crying out, we want a king like the other nations have. We don't want this king. We don't want him. We want to be like you. That's exactly what they're saying to Jesus here, too. 
We don't want you as our king. We want to be like the powerful nations. There's a cost to this. Verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You want a king that's like the other nations? You will get a king that's like the other nations. We don't get to decide how we relate to God. We don't get to decide who is king. If you go to God and you recognize, you know what? There's a problem with our relationship here. It's sin. And I'm going to tell you how I want this to be handled. You don't get to do that. Imagine if you are a city that is at war with a superior army, and now that army has surrounded you, and they say, here are the terms of peace. You don't get to say, I don't like those terms of peace. I've rewritten them. Here they are. You have to follow my terms of peace. What's going to happen if you do that? That surrounding army is going to crush you. By our sin, we have made ourselves God's enemies. We've separated ourselves from God, and we have declared, we don't want you as our king. I can be king. This is rebellion. This is, this is heinous. And God has promised that if we keep up that rebellion, then we will be destroyed. Jesus is coming as a messenger of peace, running over enemy lines, coming to you saying, you don't have to die. There is an army coming over that is going to crush you. I bring you terms of peace. You can have peace with God, and you can lose nothing and gain everything. Do you want it? You just have to bow your knee to the king. Judgment is what comes when you deny that peace offering from Jesus Christ. And it's real. It will come one day. I don't know when it's going to come, but Jesus is going to bring that judgment. Jerusalem, because of their rejection of Jesus, sealed their faith for that judgment. And what happened to the physical city of Jerusalem is just a taste of what eternal judgment is. It's just a taste of what missing out on that peace with God means. One last thing I just want to point out from this text. Because Jesus is the unrecognized king. And if you don't recognize him, then you remain at war with the true king. But I also want us to see here that Jesus once again just radically destroys any concept or, or any, any idea that we think this is what a king is like. He shows us anew what it really looks like to be a king. Verse 41, after being, re- after being rejected by the Pharisees, was just a symbol of being rejected by all of Jerusalem. It says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over. In chapter 18, Jesus told his disciples why he was going to Jerusalem. 
and he's done it several times in the gospel of Luke so far, he's saying, I'm going to go there and I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the hands of the Gentiles, and I'm, I'm going to be murdered. And he knew exactly what he was going to be doing. In Luke 9.53, after he tells the disciples that he's going to die, it says, it says in Luke 9.53 that he set his face on Jerusalem. He was determined to go there, even though he knew exactly what was going to happen. He's going to die in a week, the most brutal death that could ever be imagined. And he's going to suffer the wrath of sin on his being. And he goes to the city and he weeps over the city. He's looking at the city and he's saying, oh, that you, that you. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed in 40 years because of their rebellion against God. He's going to die in a week. And his mind is so centered on what others are going to be going through. Jesus has a rich and deep mercy for you. You think about the situations that you were in that, that are just really hard for you, that, that are really you're really struggling through. You think about the sorrow that rests on your heart. You've got burdens. I know you have burdens. I have burdens. We all have burdens. Jesus really cares about those. You're not alone in those things. He is merciful. You know weeping is a mercy. This brokenness is a mercy. He's saying it doesn't have to be that way in your life. Jesus says to you, even today, he's calling out to you. He's visiting you today through his word and through his spirit saying, you don't have to die in your sin. For the believer, you don't have to struggle in your sin alone. Jesus is not looking at you, begrudging giving you comfort, begrudging giving you himself. He's saying, come, just come. So Jesus' mercy is others-focused. And Jesus' mercy is deep, it's rich, it's not going away. Jesus' mercy leads him to even visit you today. Does your king resemble this kind of king? Does your king fit for you right now? You recognize it's not Jesus, but your king fits for you right now. You can toss him off whenever you don't, whenever he doesn't fit anymore. Are you ready to have your life fitted to Jesus? To recognize that there are all these other pretenders to the crown, but there's only one true king. There's only one who's rich in mercy who will have you whenever you come. Who's ready today to visit you, wherever you are.